main places we'll be today is in Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6. So you can kind of start there uh, in Matthew chapter 6. Keep your finger there or, or turn your phone on or your bi- or a device that has your Bible app and get it to Matthew chapter 6. We'll be dealing from the um, English Standard Version of Scripture. So our series, our general series that we're doing, for those of you here for the first time, is Matthew, the Gospel of the Kingdom. Matthew, the gospel of the kingdom, and we're kind of doing a mini-series within that called Creating a Kingdom Culture in Your Home. And so today, we're going to talk about the how to create a kingdom culture in your home. And last week, we talked about what that kingdom culture was, and today, it's going to be practically how do we create that kingdom culture. So how to create a kingdom culture in your home. Now, there are some ambiguities in that title, and I want to clarify as we begin here. By kingdom culture, we mean kingdom of God culture not kingdom of man. And even to clarify that, we're talking about a home whose attitudes, values, and lifestyle practices honor Jesus as the king of the house and have glorifying him as the central uniting purpose. In other words, that home is about Jesus and the, the, the thing that brings it all together, the uniting purpose is that we are putting Christ before all things. Amen? Amen. So as we said last week, you cannot bring the kingdom of God to your home until Jesus is the king in your heart. Amen. It starts in your heart. So you can't have a kingdom culture in your home, and you have a kingdom culture in your heart. And, and when you think about what's the, what's the challenge for Christianity in our modern culture, it is being able to develop that kingdom uh, culture in your heart, that kingdom perspective in your heart. And I'm going to talk about that perspective a little bit later on. So, uh, uh, you know, you can live in a kingdom home without Jesus as king of your heart, and we see that, that, and that happens as children, adults get older and they reject Jesus. You can also follow Christian principles for marriage and parenting and not have Jesus as your king. Common grace, or that which God gives to humanity, will add blessing to that. But a true kingdom home requires the prevailing purpose and values of the home to flow out of the hearts of the home in mutual submission to Jesus as king and faith in him as savior. So we looked at some cultural indicators on last week. Remember those? Uh, uh, That uh, uh, is intentionally create a kingdom culture in our home. Some of the things that, that show us whether we have a kingdom culture in our home. Now, I'm not going to go through them today, so uh, you can get last week's message on, on the web and kind of look at those cultural indicators that show us that we have a kingdom culture in our home. So, so here is uh, just some things that we want to do. We want to know how or what or how should we get practically to this idea of a kingdom culture in our home. Now, we'll make the assumption today that that Jesus is the king of your heart. 
If you're a Christian, we're going to assume that Jesus is king of your heart. Now, I don't know. I can't see into your heart. I don't know if that's, that's true or not. But we're going to go with that assumption for the purpose of our message, that Christ is the king of our heart. So if he's the king of our heart, how practically do we uh, enthrone him as the king in our homes? You know, one of the, the, the challenges for, as I said, for Christians is to move from from systematic or theology to practical theology. That's the application of what we learn in Scripture. You know, I can, I can learn the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, but how do I apply thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? So there's a practical application element that's critical for developing kingdom culture in your home. So now in doing that, in understanding that, let's go back to Matthew 6.33 and talk for a moment about this idea of prioritizing, how we prioritize Christ in our life. So I want to look at this, though, in Matthew 6.33 in the context in which it appears in Matthew's gospel. And in that context, we see in that sixth chapter, Jesus is talking about a number of things that have to do with practical living in the kingdom. So he covers some very practical topics, the first being the practice of righteousness and giving. So he says this in verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Wow. (laughs) That chapter starts off hitting kind of hard, doesn't it? Don't, Don't practice or beware of practicing your righteousness just so that other people can see how righteous you are. Okay, he says, for then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. So guess what? If you do that, your reward is very simply the accolades that you get from others. So if you are the kind of person that says that wants to hear people say, oh, look how holy you are. Look how holy that person is. My, they are that all of that. If you're doing, if you're practicing your righteousness so that people could, so that people could, could do that, then that's your reward. Don't look for the father to give you a reward. He says in verse two, thus, when you give to the needy. So it's amazing how this righteousness, practice of righteousness and giving are very connected. I'm going to throw a, a monkey wrench in this for us for just a minute. When you think about benevolent giving, If we're giving as a church benevolently so that other people or even ourselves can stand up and say, look what we gave. We are doing this for the wrong purpose. I am of the opinion that while we bless people and do all those things, we have to be very careful as a church about taking the position of look at what we've done. Because right here, if you're sounding the trumpet, he says, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the street that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So even as we bless others, if you're blessing somebody that might even be in this congregation, don't tell everybody about it. 
Amen? You know, don't, don't, oh, I gave such and such this, or I gave $100 to that. Don't, don't, don't do that. Because it makes people question what your motivation was in your giving. So, so Jesus talks about the practice of righteousness and giving. Then he goes on to, to, to talk about prayer in verse 5 of Matthew 6. He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Now, the Greek word for hypocrites is hypocrite, and that Greek word really means uh, to be something that you are not or to pretend to be something you're not. In other words, it's the word they use for actor. So he's saying, don't be like the actors. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners that they may be seen by others. You see this theme going on about doing things uh, uh, out of the wrong motives? Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. He says, but when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you even ask. God knows what you need. He also knows what you want. But he's promised to supply your needs. (laughs) Amen. That'll catch up with you when you get home. So you, see, so you see this, this dynamic, and this is going somewhere, so stay with me here. It's going somewhere. So you have, you have this idea of practicing righteousness and giving. You have prayer. The next thing he talks about is forgiveness. Look at Matthew 6 and 5. He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so they may be seen by others. So prayer is connected to this idea of forgiveness. Now, in verse 14, he goes right into this forgiveness. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I could preach a whole year. And then some on that passage. We have so much to learn about forgiveness. In that text, I'll throw this in for free. There is nowhere in that text that says you can hold back your forgiveness because somebody didn't say they were sorry. A lot of us learn that that's what forgiveness is. Waiting on a confession of sin. You imagine what, how long God would have to wait <laughs> if he had to wait on some of our confessions. <laughs> but our Father in heaven took every sin that we have committed, the ones not yet committed, and nailed them to a cross with Jesus Christ bearing sin. He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might have righteousness through the father. And so, and so he talks about that, that praying, he says, but then, but then when you, you know, your father won't forgive you. And so, so forgiveness. And then he goes on to fasting in verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. I think that's a good way to put it in the ESV, the gloomy, you know, some people when they're fasting, you know, it's like, how are you today? I'm fasting. 
woe is me. I am fasting. And I want everybody to know how, look, why is fasting so gloomy? You know, if you're hungry, just admit, I'm hungry. (laughs) But fasting is not something that God is forcing you to do. Okay? He says, they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. You see this theme constantly of they have their reward. But when you fast in the kingdom, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. So he moves from fasting now, and he talks about serving. So this is the context of Matthew 6, 33. He says, no one can serve, verse 24, two masters. For either will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. So you see this common thread of, of, of these attitudes that are kingdom attitudes and kingdom values. Then Jesus says, before he gets to Matthew 6, 23, he gives a, a, a soliloquy from Matthew 25 through, through 33 or 34. And it starts in 25 by, by dealing with life in general. So he says, I've given you all these things, but I'm going to talk to you about life. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious or do not worry about your life, what you eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? We worry about the wrong things. Amen. If you have any anxiety, it should be for the kingdom of Christ to come. Thy kingdom come, your kingdom come. Lord, I, I am anxious for the kingdom. We get anxious, get up in the morning, closet full of clothes, and looking, I don't have anything to wear. And we stand there, five minutes, <laughs> kind of going back and forth. And we, we get concerned about these kinds of things. So Jesus is saying, Don't be anxious about life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So the end of chapter 6 places all of this in perspective. He has said much about our attitude toward God and the kingdom. And it seems to me in looking at this that that attitude And perspective is important in the setting of priority. Now, I said all that to say that if you don't have the right attitudes and the right perspective about the kingdom, you will never get to kingdom priority. Now, I knew it was going to be quiet on that one. So now, if that's so, we have some clarity. As to why Matthew 6.33 is such a seminal verse and says, but seek first, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. God's kingdom first. If this is not your perspective or attitude or toward life, then you will not only struggle to create a kingdom culture in your home, but you will struggle 
in successfully participating in the kingdom of Christ in general. In other words, you might be a miserable Christian. If God is not priority, maybe the misery that you are carrying with you every day is the direct result of not placing Christ first in your life. Two or three people get that today. I mean, (laughs) but it's true. It's true. So how then, pastor, do we create this kingdom culture in our homes? So remember what the kingdom is. The kingdom that we're talking about, the kingdom of God, is the reign of God through Jesus Christ. So the kingdom of God is where God reigns through Jesus Christ. And first it should be your heart, then it should be your home, it should be everything about your life where, the, where God is reigning through Jesus Christ. And so the goal of a kingdom home is to align the values of the home with the values of the king. Culture is shaped over time. So none of these things that we're going to talk about today are, are standalone remedies. You know, you, you can't go home and say, I'm going to do one and abracadabra, I'm going to have a kingdom culture. It's not how this works, okay? It's not, you don't wave a magic wand and get a kingdom culture. It takes time to develop this because culture is shaped over time. It's kind of like, how many people in here have been to the Grand Canyon by show of hands? A few people seen pictures of it, right? It's hard to believe that a river carved that out. Now imagine how much time that that took for that water to run and hit that rock And every time water passed, it shaped, it molded, it took some of the rock away, it eroded. And now what we have is a very beautiful depiction of God's handiwork. Culture in your home is similar. Don't put the pressure on yourself when you go home today to say, all right, we're having a family meeting, we're going to have a kingdom culture right now. But implement develop these principles that we're going to talk about today on how to do this. So, so how do we do it? How do we do it? We have to align them. We got, you know, pick up a few, focus on them, and bend the culture slowly over time. So the first one in creating a kingdom culture in your home is talking to the king. Everybody say, talk to the king. Talk to the king. Talk to the king. All right. We begin with this one because it's the easiest and most powerful mechanism to shift culture in your home. You know, maybe you've not been talking to the king in your home. Somebody else has been doing the talking and doing the leading and doing all of those things. But prayer is when we talk to our king. Don't get too caught up in the Trinitarianism of this here. We can talk to each member of the Trinity and collectively as the one true God. So in other words, when you say Jesus, you're saying God. Okay, understand that. The point is that prayer is inherently a submission to the lordship of Jesus. It demotes us and promotes Christ. It brings our soul into awareness of the authority and the majesty of God. It does the same for the family in the home. When family members pray,
pray together, they are collectively affirming there is a higher authority around here than us. Are there regular family times when you could create a habit of prayer? Here's some ways in which we can do that. You can do it through your meal, your meal times. You're gathered around the table and pray. Do it at bedtime. You can do it in the morning. You can do it when you have a big day ahead. You can do it when there's great sorrow and need in your life. And you can do it prior to coming to worship. You know, how we ought to pray, we ought to pray in home before we get to church, before we get to worship. Imagine what worship would be if everybody prayed before they came here and we actually literally entered to his courts with thanksgiving and into his presence with praise. Imagine what God would do for us and how we would see the move of God in our, in our fellowship when that happens. Sometimes we need to pray away our morning orneriness. That's it. You know, I'm not going to tell you I'm not sometimes ornery in the morning. I look at my schedule the night before and like, I'm going to be ornery tomorrow morning. I'm just, I, I already know. So you can pray and remove that. So when you come to worship, there's a gladness and a joy. The Bible says, serve the Lord with gladness. You shouldn't be in here like, you know, somebody was forcing us to come. You know, sometimes we Christians can be the saddest folks in town, right? You know, we start talking, we sound like Charlie Brown's teacher, you know, wah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so we just have some joy about serving the Lord, some gladness. You ought to see your brothers and sisters in Christ and be truly glad to see them, to greet one another with love. So Paul says this in Ephesians 6, 18. He says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. How many people do you see on Sunday morning and you come up to them and say, what can I pray for you about? Tell me something that's going on in your life that I can pray for you about. If you really want to see our prayers are too filled too many times with our own selfish needs. God, my bills, God, my money, my health, my family, my, my, my. If you have anybody right now that you're having a little moment with, you know, these moments of conflict, start praying for them. You have to go out of your way to be mad at somebody you're praying for. If you truly are earnestly praying for that person, it's, it, you, God releases that burden. And gives you a heart of forgiveness, turns a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Amen. So pray for the saints. So not only do we, do we have prayer and talk to the king, here's what we have to do. We also have to listen to the king. How does the king speak to us? Well, one way our king speaks is through his written word to us. The Bible will have a prominent and revered place in a kingdom home. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 16 and 17 says this, all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is breathed out by God is literally the breath of God 
The Greek word there is pneuma, from which we get pneumonia. It means air. God is, it's God breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So we listen to the king through his word. What does the Bible say? I know what your girlfriend says. I know what your guy friend says. But what does the Bible say? I know what your mama said. And I know what your daddy's favorite line was. But what does the Bible say? I know what you might be saying in your heart. But what does the Bible say? It says that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We must listen to the king through the God-breathed scriptures. The Bible should be prominent in your home, particularly in the norm of your family rhythm. It should not be a book on the end table. That should have a sign on it says, for display purposes only. <laughs> Big old family Bible sitting there. And, you know, I'm bad. I'm a, I have to confess this. If you have a family Bible in your home and I'm doing a pastoral visit, don't leave the room. Because I'm going to open it. And if it cracks like this... <laughs> I'm kidding. I won't do that. (laughs) But too many times our Bibles become brand new. Had a lady tell me once, oh, I've had this Bible for 20 years. I promise you all the gold was still on the side. (laughs) It looked brand new. The cover, everything. So, I mean, what are you reading? But I've had this Bible. You don't get this word by just laying the book on your heart. I had the word of God on my heart. This is what you mean right here? That's not what you get. You have to actually read it. You have to listen to the king. And so, so that's part of that culture. Now, as you, you, not only, you not only talk to the king, you listen to the king, but you talk about the king. So you have to have kingdom conversations in your home. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9 says this, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Now, The Orthodox Jews took this literally because if you ever see Orthodox Jews, they would have a little something on their wrist, a leather band wrapped, and in it is the Word of God because it says you should bind them as a sign on your hand. They took that literally. And even some will have a little leather thing right here on the side of their head. It shall be as a frontlet before your eyes. Now, whether you take that literally or not, I won't wrestle with that today. But what I'm going to tell you, the actual meaning of this is that you must have these kingdom conversations in your family rhythm. 
We're not talking with the next generation about the glory of the Lord. You've heard me say many times from right in this, this pulpit, I've said to you that, that after Joshua died, the Bible says in Judges, there arose a generation that did not know the Lord or the things that he had done. How does that happen to a group of people who walked across the Red Sea, who saw these miracles and these, these wonderful things that God had done for Israel and the next generation doesn't even know because we're not having, they were not having these conversations. Your children need to hear the story of your struggle and how God brought you out. Amen. Amen. That's a praiseworthy moment. Amen. How, and I really don't want to labor here too long because I said I was going to be short today. But, but, but understand this thing about not talking. Your children don't know your struggle. Listen, we get too prideful as, and try to present ourselves to our children as if we've always had it together. Mothers, talk to your daughters about your BC, your before Christ. Maybe they were men in your life that should not have been there. Fathers, talk to your sons about your BC. Maybe you was the player player, player extraordinaire before Christ came into your life. Let your sons know that God had to arrest your development and change your heart so that you understand a man is one who can make it with one woman. Have kingdom conversations. Talk to your children. Talk about the kingdom. Things that are going on in our world today, have the conversation in context of the kingdom. Children have questions. They want to know. There are wars and rumors of wars. What does Jesus say about that? That there are signs that the end may be near. Be honest with your children. And so don't only have these kingdom conversations, but also the next one is worship the king. Worship the king. God has made the human body with regular rhythms. We sleep, we eat, we drink, and spiritually from the beginning, God set a day of the week aside, a Sabbath, a rest, a day of worship. We get so busy that we forget to Sabbath. We get up on Sunday morning sometimes and say, I'm thinking about all the things that I have to do. I have to do the laundry, all this stuff when I get home. I think I'm just going to skip church today. You need Sabbath. Here's what Jesus said about worship. In one particular instance, in Matthew chapter 4, the devil has Jesus you know, in this throes of this temptation in the wilderness. He's hungry. He's tired. His physical body is aching. 
And, and the Bible says in verse 8 again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will just fall down and worship me. Now, two things jump out right there. Number one, understand that Satan, your enemy, wants worship. He wants what's, what is exclusively God's. He wants you to sacrifice the very thing that belongs to God and God alone. He says, I'll give you anything if you'll just give me what belongs to God. And too many times in our families, we fall for that. We get stuff and put it ahead of God. So PlayStations and Nintendos and, and cable TV and internet and all these fancy gadgets that we have become more important to us. Our jobs become more important than our worship. And so he says, he says, I'll give you everything if you'll just fall down and worship me. I love what Jesus does here. He says, be gone, Satan. In other words, I'm not even having this conversation with you. Get out of my sight, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Are you worshiping God alone? Be careful about saying what you can't live without. Oh, I can't live without this. And I know people fall in love and they look at each other all gooey-eyed and, and everything. And they look and they say, I can't live without you. I can't live without you either. And God is saying, you can't live without me. I am a man. Now, you know, I, I know, you, you know you're in love and all that stuff. And I'm saying that's a great thing. And love is good and love is great. But be careful about placing human beings in the place that's reserved for the creator. What happens if that human being decides they're not going to love God anymore? You staying with the human being or you loving God anyway? So we must worship only God. Then here's the thing, just a couple more and we're done. We have to serve the king. Everybody say, serve the king. So in Mark 10 and 45, Jesus says this, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. I love the way it's written. Look at that. For even somebody whose status and position is way higher than yours and mine, even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. And what he's really saying is, if I can serve and I am God Almighty, I came here to serve. How in the world do you get in your mind that serving is not a part of your life? See, people who don't serve are like sponges. What they want to do is come to worship on Sunday, soak up the word, soak up the gospel, and go about their business. 
But what they don't realize is by Sunday afternoon, when you're not serving, the enemy is squeezing that sponge. And that's why by Monday or Tuesday, you feel dry because you're not serving, because you're not having a kingdom mindset. You think that if I get a sermon on Sunday, everything else will fall in place in my life. Oh, come on. Some of us were like that. You know, we, we felt like we'd go out Friday night, go out Saturday night, but I was in church on Sunday. I might have been half asleep, but I was... <laughs> But I was there. So I won't spend a lot of time on that. But, but simply note that a kingdom home is a home where serving the king by serving his people is of high value. And so, so we serve the king by serving God's people. Take your kids with you and serve the Lord together. Let me tell you how important that is. I was a seven-year-old kid. My father was, was made a deacon at, at our church growing up. And there was nothing, and in in the church I grew up in, some of you know what I'm talking about, the deacons sat on the deacon's row, right? It was understood. You don't have a, you don't sit where the deacons sit. You don't wear that title. And so the deacons sat on the deacon's row, and I would always beg my father, can I sit with you? Why? Because I felt like my dad is there, he's serving, and he's doing it, and he would sit me right next to him. And I'd have my little bow tie on and my little feet can't even reach the ground. But I was sitting with my father learning how to serve. And look at where I am today. Teach your children how to serve. Serve the king. Don't send your children to serve. I'm going to send my children to, oh, the youth are doing this. They're going to clean up and everything. Oh, you go and help clean up. Serve with them. And finally, my brothers and sisters, celebrate what the king celebrates. In the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verse 8, we read this. Finally, brothers, Paul is reaching a summation here. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The story of the prodigal son is the third parable in that chapter in Luke. And they all have the same point. There is no greater joy in heaven than when a sinner comes to repentance. How wonderful. I can only, and it fills my heart with emotion and even now I feel like the tears are welling in my eyes because how wonderful I can't wait to see the glory of God manifest in the celebration of heaven when people get saved heaven gets excited can't you just imagine That even today, sitting in this room, if someone gives their life to Christ, yeah, we get a little excited. 
but God hits the pause button on everything in heaven. And he says, wait, down there at that little church in Gary, somebody got saved, band, strike up the band, play the music, glory, glory, glory. Somebody gave their life to Jesus. There is no greater joy. No greater joy. Celebrate the things that God celebrates. You want to know how to tame your tongue? Start celebrating what God celebrates. You want to know how to get that cussing spirit out of you? I know, I mean, I know nobody in here, of course. I'm just, I'm just, just throwing that out there. Just... Start celebrating what God celebrates. Michael Jordan used to say this, and I'm done. They would ask him, Michael, you're, you're playing against the Detroit Pistons. They're tough. They're physical. Michael, you're playing against the Los Angeles Lakers for the, for the championship of the world, for the NBA. Well, you know, Michael, what, what are you going to do with James Worthy and Jabbar and Magic Johnson or Isaiah Thomas and Bill Lambeer and Rick Mahorn? What are you going to do with those guys? And Michael would look at the reporter and he would say, if we just play our game, we're going to be fine. I'm telling you, Christians, stop worrying about what you're going to do with the enemy that's out there, that's trying to destroy. We know what his job is. I'm telling you that if we just play our game, if we elevate Jesus, if we believe that he said, and I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. If we would just do that, we're going to be fine. Not worried about what the enemy's doing. I'm celebrating what God is doing. He woke you up this morning. He started you. If you need something to celebrate, how about the fact that your eyes clicked open today? How about the fact that you're drawing free air? How about the fact that your family, in spite of all, is here? (laughs) I said I was done, but anybody knows any black preacher gets three times to close, so... (laughs) I had a lady tell me one time, she said, she said, Pastor, I want you to pray for my husband to come to church. He just needs to come to church. And I just wish that he would come. I'm here every week. I get so sad that he's not here. And I said, okay, I'll pray that he comes. And and this went on for years. One day, we were at a funeral for her, one of her parents. I think it was her, her father. We're at the funeral. And just my heart was burdened to speak to her husband. And I went over to him and I said, man, God, God kept you safe through all the years you worked in that hot, dirty, nasty steel mill and dangerous places. God did all that. Your family's healthy. He said, God says God's, God's, God kept his part of the bargain. And I didn't know, you know, I just kind of just trying to let the spirit use me. And he started crying because unbeknownst to me, He had prayed to God to keep him safe and his family. I didn't know that. And he started coming to church every Sunday. (laughs) 
And the funny thing is, he would get up in the morning, he's rushing her out of the house, and she mad. <laughs> Come on, we're going to church. Come on, let's go. Get it moving. <sighs> you, you bother me. Celebrate <laughs> what God celebrates. Amen. God bless you. Come on, let's give the Lord praise today. Amen. I hope you're blessed by that. I hope you're blessed by that.